right, so today's sermon is on gender. And it's going to start with a joke. But it turns out if the sermon's on gender, then the joke might be on me. Because I know exactly what you're all thinking. I know exactly what you're all thinking. What is there left to say about gender? It's kind of all been said, hasn't it? Simple. Maybe that's why John gave this sermon to me, the intern, because it's more of a beginner subject. Gender. Simple. It's good to have a make fun of John joke at the beginning. I realized I was in trouble last week when I went to get my hair cut. I might have actually known before that, but I went in and I met my hairdresser and I sat down. I said, is it okay if I listen to a lecture while you cut my hair, you know, put earbuds in? And she was all chatty and nice. And she's like, oh, sure. Why are you listening to a lecture? And suddenly a little nervous, I said, oh, I'm preparing for a talk I have to give uh, next week. I might have even been bragging now that I think about it, which explains the fall I was about to have. Um, she And so she says to me, oh, where are you giving a talk? Which I had strategically not called a sermon, but now I said, a church. And while we're at it, the talk is about gender. Now, after a brief pause and the look of horror on her face, she said, I would hate to be the person giving that talk. And we both laughed. <laughs> Gender, it stirs us, doesn't it? That's good news. The uncomfortable feeling you have right now may be good news. It means there is more room for freedom. And I'm excited, not only because I get to use the words penis and vagina in a church microphone. But because I believe there is better news than we ever imagined in relation to our identities as men and women and everything in between as we look upon the risen Christ. For in Christ there is no oppression in gender tropes or stereotype, but there is also no hiding in a false sense of self for all are naked and exposed before their creator. True sexual and gender liberation can only exist when we look to the one who made us, who marked us, who desperately wants to love and redeem us. Now, before I begin, I want to lay some ground rules because I think it's important to approach ourselves and others creatively and relationally as image bearers of God. God is crea crea creational and relational. Um, and we need rules for creativity. If you don't know what I mean, try playing Monopoly without any rules. It's not much fun. Feels a little like chaos. And your brother, who wanted to be the banker, has a stash of $500 bills under his right thigh. True story. Try painting a picture without paint and without a canvas. Try writing a beautiful sonnet without spaces between the letters and without margins or rhyme schemes without paper or pen. There's no sense to be made of it. Freedom exists within the boundaries of the structure for which it was created. 
Human beings always push the boundaries. Just look to Mount Everest and ask why. Part of our job as Christians is to prayerfully, scripturally, communally discern the boundaries and to live freely within them. So the rule, actually I have one rule. We're all here to learn, me included, perhaps me foremost. So please engage with me, converse with me, honor your brothers and sisters in this way. If you have walls, please trust me enough to come out from behind them. Please commit yourselves to writing notes. One suggestion would be to write down any statement that I make that you're not sure of or that you flat out don't believe. Write that down. Then promise to keep listening anyways. Don't get stuck there. Later on, when you're home and you have some time to think, I encourage you to write down next to these statements what you do believe in place of what I said. And then someday soon, I hope to hear your statements of belief and continue this conversation so I can learn from each one of you. This is the beginning of a conversation in Jubilee. We want to have language to talk freely and respectfully about what it means for us to have gender, our hopes and our hurts in that. We're not moving quickly. There's time for each of us to share. And the second rule, even though it's not a rule, is that this is a provisional statement that I'm making in regards to gender. I pray it will also resemble a sermon. By that, I hope that the word of the living God will go forth and touch hearts, that he will be experienced and we will be transformed. And what I mean by provisional is that I currently have a stance, and that stance will change throughout my life. That's okay. I'm going to keep learning from the scriptures, from tradition, from science, from reason, from my experience, and from all of you if you'll share the gift of your lives with me. And lastly, someday I'm going to see him face to face. And all of this that I know darkly, that I see darkly, I will finally know at last. So a short prayer before we dive in. Jesus, you alone know us inside and out. You formed us, words made flesh, spoken by the Father. You filled us with the breath of your Holy Spirit. You jealously call us your own. So we trust you to lead us as we explore the space you've given us within ourselves and within our gender identities. Be with us here as we embark. So let's read the creation account, Genesis 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Is gender a gift? We have a bit of a problem, don't we? My hairdresser knew it. Right when I put up that slide that said gender, maybe some of us here knew it. Why is it that when God claims to have made us male and female with the mark of his image and glory, that we have this problem? Now, we can cop out quickly and say, oh, it's just the fall. But that would make a six-minute sermon. And I also don't believe that. I think we need to go deeper. Gender and sexuality have become both the preoccupation and the taboo of our society. We're preoccupied as sex is everywhere now. Billboards, magazines, televisions, the internet, everything seems connected on some level to these biological parts we have. Everything goes unless you don't agree that everything goes. They don't like that. We live in the post-sexual revolution and post-feminist revolution. We can't forget that. These are critical social events that influence us. Historians will call these events watershed events as numerous historical streams all flow into one pond, one huge pool, creating a complex and massive response. And so the old order has been overthrown in some ways. The old order being that of sex found within the marriage for procreation only, and the gender roles of men being the sole breadwinners while women are at home raising kids. Now this is the taboo. Sometimes it feels like unless you agree wholeheartedly with every aspect of the new order, you are required to keep your mouth shut, silently complicit, or else you're quickly labeled a bigot or worse. This battle is occurring in many places on an institutional level. Now, why is it in a, in a new order of total freedom, according to culture, where whatever's right for you is right, that things can start to feel a little not free, a little oppressive? Why is that? How is it? We should all just be able to believe what we believe and they believe what they believe that things tend to start to fall apart. Well, one reason I'll pose to you is that to believe in pluralism, which is what culture is advocating, means you exclude all those who believe in monotheism, which means me. I'm excluded. Pluralism, if it claims all religions are equally valid or true, must by its very nature exclude any other truth claims. So pluralists and so-called inclusivists, although they might be sincere, well-believing, and beautiful people, are deceiving themselves to say they can include and somehow honor all religions. In fact, it's just as exclusive as saying Jesus is the only way to truth and life. So let's be honest. We're all exclusivists together in the sense that making a statement of truth excludes all other claims. Now that being said, G the claim of Jesus recklessly offers inclusion 
to anyone who desires him, who calls upon his name, who is in need of a savior, anyone. So how did we get here? How did we arrive in this crazy place? Well, Christians are partly to blame. We have dirty laundry, actually much dirty laundry. It smells a little bit maybe like a town dump where we we put the garbage, right? It's important to face that. It's important to face what doesn't smell good and expose it to the light because the truth sets people free and not half the truth, not only the good parts of the truth. I would like to offer to you a little slice of history beginning just after the New Testament period because it was sadly our traditions, our church fathers, which played a major role in the current gender crisis. They sanctioned at times oppression of women. We are responsible. God told us that when he made us in the garden. We were responsible then, and we are able to respond now. Responsible. But that, I will ultimately say, is also good news because it means we don't have to be afraid anymore of what's happening out there. It means we can respond with our love and with our lives. So bear with me for a little history. So we got some dudes. Early church fathers. So beginning just after the New Testament era, late first century or second early second century. I'll try to sound smart. I'm not a historian. Um, I pillaged a really cool lecture actually by Maxine Hancock. And if you guys want to learn more about this, I will. I can set you up to learn more about this subject. So we have these early church fathers called the patristic writers. The period of the patristic writers goes to 700 A.D. Now, they had the scriptures, and they were trying to understand what the scriptures meant and how to live in light of them. They were the first writers of theology outside of the scripture. Now, they got many things incredibly right, such as the beginning of church doctrine, the creeds. Um, This guy, Tertullian, was the first one to mention the Trinity, wrestling with what it means that God is three in one. Um, And also wrestling with sin and having the Holy Spirit. Why do I still sin with the Holy Spirit? But in the area of women, male and female relations, it seems they missed the emancipatory thrust of the scriptures. Jesus came into a patriarchal society, meaning the man ruled over the household. They were his possessions. He came to liberate those who were oppressed. Jesus actually says, do not call anyone on earth father at one point. He says, you have one father, and he's in heaven. Now, we don't take that really literally nowadays, but maybe we should be challenged by what Jesus is saying about patriarchy. Now, Tertullian, in his discourse, now, he was an influential and well-recognized church father. In his discourse on the appearance of women, he's quoted saying, You are the gateway of the devil, the one who unseals the curse of that tree. It's very shocking. Instead of noticing that men and women were marked equally with the Imago Dei in the garden, 
These writers called women a derivative creature, focusing more on the Genesis 2 account of Eve being taken from Adam's side. Echoing culture around them, they shared a low view of women as subordinate. She was considered passionate where man is reasonable. Therefore, God committed governance to man. These are absolutely debilitating models to find one's identity. And I wish that that quote was the only quote uh, that could be taken from these writers. Um, A few hundred years later, we have St. Jerome and St. Augustine, and this thought hasn't gone away. St. Jerome and Augustine both looked upon marriage and sex through this lens, that of oppression, calling wedlock a form of bondage and women quite useless other than for childbearing, drawing men away from their relationship with God. Later in the medieval period, we have a revival of Greek thought through such thinkers, you can go to the next one, such thinkers as Thomas Aquinas. Um, You can hear in his writings the echo of Aristotle, Juvenal, and Ovid, who saw women as deficient, a defective form of male sexually promiscuous, passionate, and untrustworthy. The Greeks might have said there was only one gender, male, and women were a defective form of male. This painting is uh, painted in the early Renaissance, or I mean, actually, that's not early Renaissance, but anyway. It's called the Eva Prima Pandora, painted in 1550. Eve here is associated with Pandora, Pandora in Greek mythology was a woman who found a box and opened a box she was told not to, unleashing all of the world's ill and evil and death. So we see under her arm is the skull, death, and wrapped around her arm is the serpent. This is called Eva Prima Pandora. In Eve receiving temptation and offering it to Adam, she was seen as the source of human evil and ill and she was often tied to the serpent. Now, we obviously didn't get it all wrong, okay? Um, Yes, there were moments of illumination. Yes, there there were offsets from this mainstream. The cult of the Virgin Mary gained strength during the Middle Ages, and there were nunneries with where powerful women were given voice and authority. Um, But these offsets were generally divorced from sexuality, as Mary was worshipped for her lack of sex, and the nuns took vows of chastity, um, while domestic women at home were considered lesser. Now, I'm not saying everything was bad in the church. Um, there were, of course, many who sought to liberate through the scriptures and fought for equality and the abolition of slavery. But for the most part, the church has a sad record in this area. I'm sharing what came as a surprise to me as I learned about it because it helps us to understand how we arrived here. When a person comes with anger towards the church for past oppression, it doesn't help to pretend like we are blameless in this area. It helps to listen, to weep with those who weep, and to look for G- to Jesus for forgiveness for actual wrongs. Our postmodern world is one characterized by amnesia, social and historical amnesia, as though we just woke up here 
with no past. And we assume on some level, things have always been done this way, or we feel we feel and believe the things we do because they're the authentic us that we've uncovered or unlocked. We assume that what we believe or our identity is our choice or quest, and we have not been conditioned by the water we're swimming in. But the truth is we're living in a society post-revolution, and post-revolution there's a vacuum of power which sometimes feels like anarchy. The people revolted against gender norms, against sexual norms, against the box that had been in place since the Industrial Revolution, which said men are like this, and women are like that, and we have sex like this for these reasons, and the family looks like this. We are living post-revolution. And it's important to know that we can't go back. I don't, and I don't even know if we should fight to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The field lit on fire because it was parched and dry. If you throw a match in a soaking wet, nurtured field, it will go out. Something was wrong. Now, evangelical Christians um, have tended to respond in two ways to this rapid, unsettling change. And there's a lot of fear. On one hand, a reactionary position emerged in the late 80s and 90s against this movement, claiming traditional assumptions of gender traits um, and male dominance, or um, what they it's called complementarianism, and but there is a hierarchy in it. Um, they will be heard saying, this is the true biblical Christianity, that we are standing on the biblical model of family. This view can be researched further if you Google the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Another response is a reaction to that reaction. These are, I'm outlining, um, outlining camps. So the other re- response is Christians for Biblical Equality. They're also comprised of serious scholars, um, theologians, and hermeneuticists. They advocate a reading of scripture affirming full equality of women in marriage, work, life, and ministry, challenging assumptions of male dominance, governance, and privilege. Now, this camp isn't oppressive towards women, and this one isn't freedom, because there's a big spectrum, and I'm just outlining camps. Um, Now, as Maxine Hancock put so well, both of these positions, if taken alone, can mean a deadlock for the people of God. If positions are taken and used as a test for evangelicalism or fellowship or submission to the authority of Scripture, they become a means of exclusion. They can only hurt us, not heal us. These tests are not within the creeds of the church and should not be a test for fellowship. If you take one of these positions and are judging the other in terms of being um, more biblical or less biblical, then you are wrong. There are serious scholars on both sides who take the authority of Scripture as God-breathed. They're not playing fast and loose with their theology. Now, I'm presenting history. Sorry if that's boring. Okay, we're going to be done history now. Because I want to challenge you to place yourself in the story. We 
don't just have bodies. We are bodies. We are engendered. And we have to place ourselves in this story. What do you believe? But instead of staying encamped, it's my belief that as followers of Jesus, we must always be leaving our walls. So Jesus also, you can go to the next slide. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates in the town dump in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We must choose the way of vulnerability, that of sacrificial relationship, the way of the cross. What was God thinking when he gave us gender? I don't know. Sex, gender. Now, by sex, I mean your biological reproductive parts. And by gender, I'm referring to cultural and social differences surrounding those parts. But more than that, I'm referring also to creational differences, which I believe go deeper than our body parts or our culture. So what are some ways we can look at gender? I'll provide four quick thoughts for future discussion. The first is that some might look at our gender as a sort of joke that God has played on us. The view of God as a trickster is not a new idea. Um, and I think it's, it's important not to too quickly discard this. If you're willing to admit it, there's humor in our sex and our bodies. Just listen to the music of a wonderful fart. Where's the microphone? No, just kidding. I won't do that. I won't do that. Sometimes we need to laugh more at the sounds and the smells we make, the shapes we are, the means through which we connect. Sex in its proper context is supposed to be fun. Jesus came here to redeem this creation so in him it could be good again. So be humbled by our limits and try to laugh from time to time. Life is not always so serious. But we know that God isn't purely a jokester or cruel. The second thought on gender is its connection to our mandate to be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> so as much as gender is funny, sex is also a sacred mystery. And yes, I believe this includes those who are unable to have children through orphans, widows, spiritual orphans, um, or those called to singleness. Sex within the family unit has been the backbone of our civilization until the last 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. Sex is how 99.99% of the human beings who have ever lived arrived here. This has been the main thrust of the church throughout history in regards to our genders. The Catholic Church still holds this view that sex is primarily for procreation, and we have much to be challenged and learn from Catholic writers and thinkers on what it means to use contraceptives and prophylactics, what it means to separate sex from the impulse to create life. A third aspect of gender is that it drives us to relate outside of ourselves towards a mysterious other. And therefore, it drives us to make moral choices 
We're not animals. We are created beings which, unlike animals, have reason, morality, and spirituality. We're not the sum of our instinctual drives, although we do feel the pull to behave as animals, sometimes inwardly or selfishly, against the common good of our outward flourishing and relationships. Fourthly, in gender, we're faced with likeness and difference, which is arguably a principle of all art, likeness and difference. Think of a painting reflecting the mountain. We are like God, but also much different. We're made of the dust. We are like one another, but wholly unique. There's much overlap in men and women, but also obvious difference. We contain in our bodies reciprocal beauty, neither of us complete without the other. Because of this, I believe it's not as individuals that we contain the fullness of the Imago Dei, but in community as male and female together as the body of Christ. And it was only in Jesus that we could see him fully, the one true father. A shout out to the one true father on Father's Day. It seems as though God loves to create in this way, that of balance and reciprocity through that of gender, so we're unable to live in isolation. And this is worthy of praise. These thoughts on gender are meant to drive you to conversation. They aren't definitive or exhaustive. The questions that are being asked in culture today are meaningful questions that are important to face boldly with the living Christ as our guide. I'm not condoning behavior in culture that is depraved and it dissipates us. It makes us less than we are. I am saying Jesus was born as light into darkness and Jesus can bring light into this dark place as well. If we're looking to find a home to be accepted as we are, there's no place to go except to the one who made you who numbered the hairs on your head, who wrote all the days of your life, the one who has never left you, who plans, who has plans to give you a hope and a future. So I return to the word of God as we begin to conclude. In the Genesis account of the Imago Dei, we see that every created being, male and female, was equally given the image of God. We also see the mandate of creation equally given to both male and female. The account we see of Eve being taken from the rib of Adam, I would argue, is not to place her as subordinate to Adam, not to establish hierarchy, but to establish relationship, that we are connected and necessary for the other. Complementary, but not hierarchy. Equal. The word uh, helper used for Eve in that section of text is the Hebrew, Hebrew word konegdo ezer. Now, the first part is hard, harder to translate, they say, um, because there's not many uh, usages of that first part of the word. Um, but it can be translated as, I will make for him a help corresponding to him and adequate to himself. 
And the word Ezer is easy to translate because it's used for God in relation to Israel, always denoting a powerful figure who comes with a strong rescuing help, female. After temptation, we see male and female equally fallen. Um, Eve is not judged on behalf of Adam. Adam is not judged on behalf of Eve. But each is responsible and accountable for their own sins. They are equally redeemed by Jesus and commissioned to bear witness to the risen Christ. The gifts of the Spirit are given equally, all of which are exercised by women in the early church. In the epistles, there are restrictions placed on women in the Greco-Roman context. So we have to ask, was this to imply limits on women for all time? These were household codes, which included rules for slaves. 40% of the Roman world were slaves. We have seen the damage done by sanctioning slavery, and it has since been abolished then why not do we also abolish these restrictions on women? One can see a trajectory of grace operating in Jesus' treatment of women. In each encounter that he has with women, there's an act of liberation, breaking down oppressive societal norms with the authority of their maker. We see it with the woman at the well, the woman who's caught in adultery, not condemned, not stoned. We see it with Martha in her domestic duties and Mary in her contemplation of Christ. We see that the first evangel who encounters the risen Lord is a woman, and she's sent to bear good news about the risen Lord while she can't even bear witness in court. We know it's possible to read the Bible in a, in a hierarchical, patriarchal fashion, if we choose. It was done for a long time. But if there's a better way that's scriptural, it's grounded in, in good theology, why wouldn't we choose that? As far as my own story goes, I'm passionate about sexuality and gender exposed to the light of Christ because I've had much brokenness in this area, but also much healing. That's a picture of uh, a city dump where people are looking for food. The good news of my life has emerged from a shattered sexuality. I've been hurt by gender norms, and I carried shame in the separation between what I was told was a typical man and who I experienced myself to be. I was sexually abused when I was four years old. I had numerous sexual partners before second grade. Most of my experiences of sex were with other boys. When we were playing at this, playing husband and wife, I would often want to be the woman in the relationship without knowing or asking why. Later, I'd begin to have what I would characterize as a black hole sexuality in which I would take any kind of sexual experience to numb my pain. I had attached myself to abuse, rejection, and sex in understanding who I was fundamentally and how I gained my worth. 
since I was treated like garbage by a figure of authority and trust, maybe on some level I believed that I was. As I went through puberty, I experienced a profound depression, which I did not understand. I had buried most, uh, if not all, of the memories of my abuse and subsequent acting out. During puberty, I remember hating my body and also at times desperately wishing I was a girl because I thought girls had all the power in sex. I imagined myself having female parts and felt comfort and escape from my pain. I thought if I were a girl, I'd never be rejected because they have the power. But instead, I was sentenced to the body I had. As an adult in many fragmented relationships, I found myself wishing I could be what I might have called the weaker sex, the one who was comforted, the one who was held in another person's arms, who could be small, and yet I was ashamed to voice these needs. Because men don't need to be held, right? They don't need to be small. They're supposed to be strong. My name means man of strength. And it felt for a long time like a curse. When I came to know Christ, my insecurity in who I was as a man began to unravel. And it felt like I was uh, unraveling. It's been 10 years almost now, and I know this journey of mine will continue my entire life. Thank you, Jesus. I've wept so much. I'm passionate and emotional. I hold my wife and also need to be held. I'm sensitive and nurturing. I'm artistic and deeply empathetic. I'm a brave man. And what that means is complex and beautiful. It's more than the word. I'm not a word. I'm this. If you dissect me, I will die. I'm living and breathing. The word points to this. My sexual brokenness continues as I continue to be transformed by Jesus. I'm not defined by my actions or my sin what I have done and what was done to me, but I'm defined by who I am in Christ. Who I am is hidden in him, and the enemy cannot touch that. So if you feel like you're unraveling, know that the enemy cannot touch who you are in Christ. I'm grateful to have a loving and supporting family here at Jubilee, where I feel safe to journey towards wholeness. If I'd been told along the way that I should have this figured out by now, that I should be well, that Christ wasn't working in me because of my continued sin, then I might have been snuffed out. But he will not snuff out the smoldering wick. I believe that our sin, our behaviors, whatever belief or lifestyle we've experienced or come from, does not change the radical welcome of Jesus Christ. He came to save the oppressed, those who do not have a place, those who are cast aside, marginalized, and broken, those who are in need of a savior. I believe that at the cross in the town dump, 
there is level ground for each one of us. As we walk with Christ, I believe we must encourage each other, one another, with all gentleness and humility, approaching the word of God with fear and trembling, not to attack one another, but to allow ourselves to be transformed into servants and messengers of his grace and good news. Only Jesus can accept you. Only Jesus can make you safe and loved. Only Jesus can help you to release the old trappings of your life, the lies of the enemy, all the brokenness of sin. Today, I'm owning my story a little more in the hope that many will come to know the radical welcome and love of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. And the worship team can come forward. Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You're a good father. You're the one true father. So I pray you be with us here. Thank you that you were crushed for our iniquities. Your body was given for us. So we thank you. Amen.